0: Please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityandcaptivity.fun.
1: Welcome back to Creativity and Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Joining me today is phenom indie rapper, Open Mike Eagle. His early work includes dark comedy, Brick Body Kids Still Daydream, and Anime Trauma and Divorce. Today, he shares stories of the challenges of teaching school during the day and rapping at night. And he tells us about the Twitter war that landed him in the wrestling ring. The Eagle has landed in the form of Open Mike Eagle.
0: That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La
1: la 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 la. La la la. la Mike, there's so much I have to learn about you. I did a little bit of searching around and listening to some music and finding out that you just have a very cool toolkit of things. And so since the show is about creativity, I guess I would maybe start with a question about, you know, what does being fearless creatively mean to you?
0: Huh? Um, I think it means trying to fully execute things as they appear in my mind, there's a lot of things that can get in the way of trying to fully realize a vision. And a lot of that has to do with, or maybe even a sound as it is in my head and not letting things in my forebrain that usually are are sourced from anxiety or other feelings of uh, imposter syndrome and, and all sorts of human being stuff that can just get in the way of an idea of being really born into the world. And so for me, fearlessness means just pushing past all those things to the best of my ability.
1: Well, you mentioned imposter syndrome, which, you know, some people may not know the term, but it is essentially a sense that we might be a fraud as an artist or as a creative person. And it, it comes with the territory. It is I don't know anybody mm-hmm. that doesn't have it. And if they're overly confident that they aren't fooling themselves sometimes, then there's they're some naive sense of genius <laughs> but maybe yeah. can you talk a little bit about how that presents itself not the specifics but just when you face that wall how do you how do you get around it or over
0: it well you know for me since i have i've been involved in a bunch of different kinds of endeavors from tv stuff music stuff podcasting stuff my imposter syndrome a lot of times is based on there's a relationship to how many hours i've logged in said endeavor. So in music, I don't get it as much when I try to do something new in podcasting or in TV or or that sort of thing. Then I often can experience imposter syndrome uh, intensely because I look around and I don't necessarily know the path that got me into that room necessarily. And and that gives me a lot of uh, space to fill in those bubbles with Anxious thoughts versus confident ones.
1: Right, right. Narratives build up for everybody that come from fear. They come from, you know, feeling out of place. That just new territory, I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you're quite a bit, uh, you have a many disciplines that you're involved in. In a strange way, because of your uh, rap ability, that's a storytelling and an expression that I don't, that's not innate to me. When I listen, I can hear universal themes and the poetry and the crafty wordsmanship and the emotion. I'm really fascinated with that as a, did you grow up always with that as um a reference for you, or is it something that you came to through influences specific artists and that sort of thing?
0: I've grown up like alongside hip hop to where my environment has always been hip hop infused, and so. I've watched the culture and the music develop over time and mature as I've matured. And so, yeah, it's, it's always been around for me. It's always been right there at arm's reach. It wasn't until I got to high school and I discovered what was called underground hip hop at the time, which was pockets of collectives and of subcultures. This was present all over the world, but me being in Chicago on the South side, discovered the community of people who were actively practicing hip hop every day. These were people who were actively doing graffiti, breakdancing, and mm-hmm. rapping DJing, making beats. It wasn't something they were just consuming uh, in terms of music or fashion. Like these were people right. making things and that was their entire community was based around that. And when I encountered that, it put me in a position to feel like, Those arts were practical Mm -hmm. arts. Uh, Me and and my closest friends at the time, we all decided to just start doing all of the ones that we could afford to do. That's awesome. To me, it is amazing that understanding
1: it's possible gives you permission to dive in.
0: Right. I've met a lot of people in my life who, who are people who have similar interests as me, but maybe never met that community where they grew up or that community maybe didn't exist where they grew up. And so they never had that kind of inroads to feeling like rap was something that they could actually do it wasn't like a far away thing
1: no i understand it's it's interesting that i started out as a kid magician and juggler and worked on the street and so forth but comedy stand up comedy was not it wasn't really an option you could check on a form that was going to be your future career right mm-hmm. but i was around a lot of funny people and once that kind of Competition and that camaraderie grows, and it's you have some sense of approval, or you know that hey, this is I can do this. And then a thing like Saturday Night Live comes on, or something like that, where you go, Oh, these people are making money writing sketches and mm-hmm. being kooky and whatever. Our parents would never think it's possible, but we're allowed to dream that dream. You know, it's happened with a lot of comedy that is broken open in a lot of ways, but ultimately it's one of, and, and I imagine uh, many of the things you mentioned, breakdance and so forth. The internship is you, you got to want to do it. You got to put in the time, mm-hmm. right? Get on the ground and figure it out. Learn from some other people. There's no, you don't go to break dance school. You got to, right. you physically got to be able to, you can't just talk about it. You have to be able to, you know, right. that's what I love about all of it. I love it about stand up when people go on stage and they find their voice and there's no bullshitting. There's no at the coffee shop I used to think funny things no just show me an audience laughing and you in charge of that and I'll get that you do it
0: to me that's one of the most fascinating interesting exciting things about stand-up just as an art form and I'm I've only done stand-up a a few times but um I'm actively in that world especially here in LA performing a lot of comedy shows but I perform my music on most of them but it's the foundational meritocracy of needing to be able to produce the human reaction of laughter. Like you have to be able to do that. And if you can, there's like this entire world of options that can open up to you depending on, you know, level of commitment, work ethic, uh, luck, all of those things, but you have to have the foundational thing. You have to be able to produce that. And there's, I think with rap, But with music in general, it's just a lot more vague. And that I often wish for the clarity that stand-ups have in terms of being able to go on stage and say a thing and either it's funny or it's not. And and that might just be that room, but it's a pass-fail test where in rap, it's hard to know what metric to measure success by for an individual song.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating to me because when I hear... It's it, I think of it a little bit more in the world of poetry, and, and this is really just from being a writer. So if it makes me feel like if I feel a visceral thing, if I sense a universal theme, if I feel like this story and this song is uh, is moving me to feel a, about redemption or love or uh, victim or whatever, whatever that is, I feel it, there's a success in going, oh. I'm connecting, Mm. this person is pulling out of me something I didn't know that I had. And of course the beats and other things with all music, it can be so much more emotional. Comedy has a hard time without having that, the guideline of the, of the underscore essentially.
0: Yeah. But I would say the benefit that comedy has is that if you have a room full of people assembled as an audience, there's this understood contract that everybody came prepared to laugh. If you go to a music show, I think that contract is the agreement that everybody came to feel something, but it can be so many different things. And it's hard to know if what you're serving is what people came there to taste. (laughs) That's a
1: a great way to say it, because I do know when I know I'm going to see a friend's band or I know what that you know, what they're serving, it's different than when I'm randomly seeing an evening of showcasing artists where my head is like, I didn't like the third person. I did like the fifth person.
0: <laughs> right. I can oftentimes put people in a situation if I'm, let's say I'm opening for a bigger act and I'm basically playing to their crowd. I can put, and I have done this many times put people in a situation where they're like, i liked song <laughs> three. I didn't necessarily <laughs> like song five. And just all out of my set, you know. I'll tell you what, in the art of opening for people is quite
1: an art. Like in, the, in that phase in your career, nobody comes to see you, number one. So you kind of know mm-hmm. people are going to be coming in late. You know they're going to be giving you the side eye. You know there's just so many things you have to have the confidence to deliver your content and know that not to take it personally. True. They told me and on one music concert many years ago, it's like, here's the story. 18 minutes off stage no matter what you're saying no matter what's happening like we don't care if you (laughs) fail and fall on your face 18 minutes that's the minute we want you gone it was like oh thank you
0: well that's that's tough i mean so like they were telling you to do exactly 18 minutes it's weird i mean it's weird you know i did
1: here's what's strange i had a variety act at one time and i I was asked to do a center court of a basketball game and i said it's going to be terrible that's a terrible idea. Half the audience is in front of me, half is behind. And halftime is when they all get up to get snacks and go to the bathroom. Like this is, you need a juggler or, you know, you need somebody that's spitting ping pong balls or something. And they go, no, it'll be great. I go, no. And that was also on a time clock. And I said, well, why so strict? The referees were on a union contract and they were going to start the second half of the game at a specific time. And so they just said, set your watch and run off stage. Like we don't, we literally do not care. Wow. It was a terrible experience. And it was very funny.
0: <laughs> was, well, it a great pay, thought, was it a great paycheck?
1: It was a great paycheck. I, yeah. I said no to like three times and they go, well, what if we double it? And then, you know, you know, you regret it. You know, yeah. you, you know, it's not going to be fruitful.
0: Yeah. Those are, those are usually you're, your, there's some shows where I, the way I look at it, you get paid extra for how much is going to crush your soul. Like, like they give you a little, like whenever I perform at colleges, I go into it knowing that I'm doing it for the money because it is not going to feel good to do at all.
1: You know what? That, that is to be said about a certain amount of art, right? Sometimes you have to do things to pay for the things you want to
0: do. Yep. And you know, it, the hope is that the money, uh, somehow covers the pain, (laughs) but it just depends on how painful the event is.
1: Yeah, I like that you have a soul-crushing clause in your contract. (laughs) This kicks in right here, and that's when the extra pay is. Mm
0: -hmm. I get paid per tier.
1: Yeah. (laughs) I saw the term, uh, maybe on your website or somewhere, that you refer to what you do as art rap. And I Mm -hmm. like that term. Is
0: that unique to you? No. uh, I... Really rode with that around like 2010. I I named my first, my debut album, I I called Unapologetic Art Rap. And I was really pushing that term a lot. And in pushing it, I did hear that I was not the first person to use it. I thought I was, but I wasn't. And it, it definitely wasn't supposed to be unique to me anyway, because I was thinking of it as a way to designate the approach of not only myself, but then I had some peers who. I felt like we were all, even though our music is different, I felt like the way that we were approaching things needed a designation away from what was going on in the mainstream of rap at the time, which was probably rap at its most homogenous and commercial, was like Mm. right there in that era. I was trying to make a designation almost like it it was almost for the benefit of consumers. Right. To be like, if you were going to put us in a bin at record stores when those existed, you would you would put us you'd put us over in this section. The interesting thing is now, though, I, I mean, 10 years later, the landscape has changed a lot and mainstream rap is a lot more progressive than it used to be, even though there's still a lot of old things that it's stuck in. Uh, I think now more than ever, if you end up in that highest tier, you're given a lot more room to express non-traditional imagery and non-traditional approaches in music. That's all we ever wanted space for that. Now the term art rap isn't as necessary as I thought it was. That's kind of the origin and how I came about it.
1: Again, it is art among the many other things, but I really think at the core of all of it is expression. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by your newest piece because it feels So personal, right? It Mm -hmm. feels like so many elements of your life have changed in the last, let's say, during this year for a matter, that you're exploring uh, your feelings and your position and all of that in different parts of this new work. It's daunting, really, to look at yourself in the mirror when you're going through change. I wonder how you explored that. What was your process when you were willing to sort of open certain doors?
0: I think that a lot of it was heavily influenced by a therapist I started working with right around that time. I was in the early to middle stages of making a new work just because, you know, just the cycle of time, that's where I was. It was like time to work on the next thing. I had had a completely different aim for it when I started. It was going to be kind of a social commentary thing, but I was really having a tough time emotionally and my therapist reminded me that I have an outlet. Mm. I have a creative outlet. Like I have a, I have a craft that I can use to get things out that you can't necessarily say in normal conversation to put my ideas and my thoughts, to record them, to say them in whatever way I needed to say them to help me process emotions. And when she reminded me of that, cause I'd never really used my music that way when she reminded me of that, it just changed the course of everything that I was making. Mm -hmm. And suddenly it became an album about me dealing with the stuff that I was going through.
1: Did you feel liberated in some way to have that cathartic approached creatively?
0: Yeah. The making of it, the writing and the recording cathartic is a great word for it. I felt myself being able to, move through some stuff that I was really stuck in by, by writing some of the stuff and recording it and being able to yell it and all the things that I do to go into, to, to making stuff. The interesting thing though, was as good as it felt as therapeutic as it felt to take that approach. When it came to releasing it, I'll say I'm still undecided on whether or not that was a good idea. Psychologically. <laughs> to the, jur- the jury's still out.
1: Okay, I understand I can't compare apples to apples, but I after many years of writing many different pieces and a and a one-man show, my last piece was called Pat Hazel's Permanent Record. Hmm. And it the premise was sort of comedic in that you've if you've heard that term that something's going to end up on your permanent record and it's going to ruin you later in life. Yeah. Um anything you did wrong, any misbehavior, any time you stole beef jerky in your pants, whatever <laughs> it, it's like I committed that I was going to be completely open and honest about who I was. And at my age, I cared less what people thought of me. And it was a bold confessional idea. It was still farcical in nature. Hmm. But because of all of what we were seeing politically and things like being, people being taken down by or exposed through old photographs from their yearbook or other things, I thought, well, what if I hire a political opposition research team To look into me, right? I paid a firm that looks into senators and congressmen. And I said, I want you to look into me and anything you find, I'll have to address. And it suddenly changed the whole dynamic, the whole piece, the whole thing. And look, I didn't have a lot of skeletons in my closet, but they handed me this giant thing with Facebook posts and things I had said on the radio and things I said 30 years ago. And, you know, I had to deal with it in a way. And so- I sorted through it, and and I will say it took a lot. Uh, there was a lot of double checking. It's like, okay, I'm willing to admit, yes, that's a picture of me, but do I need to give it context? And they mm. said, well, you can, but this is how it worked in politics. We would separate the words from the picture, and we would use the picture. And I was learning a lot about getting the oh, process. Wow.
0: Right? So, so you, you've got a whole new perspective on political theater now,
1: right? Right, particularly the opponent issue, right? Then when I see Justin Trudeau's picture, I see somebody else in a situation, I go, huh, I, I get it. But now I'm confused and I, and I want to know how, <laughs> who started the theater show on this topic, right? Mm-hmm. But in the end, what came from it was a little bit of a balance. And all the way up to the opening night of that show, I was still holding a an insurance policy as a comedian. I can make them laugh and we can get through this. And I wasn't being 100% authentic. And I also didn't like that. I felt Mm. like I got this far and why am I afraid to let them see who I am? Mm -hmm. So in the first preview, I did a 90-minute show with an intermission and everyone laughed. And afterwards, I was like, oh, this is terrible for some reason. And I don't know why. Like, I feel like I'm faking this. Mm. And I knew the next night was going to be the reviewers and all of that. And the thing I hated most was the intermission. I said that makes it feel not like a story about a guy's life. It feels like two acts of a play. Right. And I want to get rid of that tonight. And I just ruthlessly cut through the stuff and I cut everything that wasn't really honest. Mm-hmm. And I, and the next day when I did it, the audience that was there liked it, but they were times they were quiet. There was times they were crying. You know, there was a mm-hmm. whole different experience. And also I didn't care what people thought of me because I had a story to tell, right? It it was a different contract, as you say, which was, I'm going to tell you the story. You may not like me during it or after it, but in the end of doing this particular run, it was 25 nights at a theater, right? And I discovered really on that second night that telling my story was more important than getting laughs. Mm. I got my share, but it didn't make any difference. It really changed my performance style that month because I didn't walk to the theater nervous. I didn't care if they approved. And I walked on stage each night and I told the same story. And it was whether there were 300 people or 25 people, I was still okay with it. And they reacted the same way. And Mm -hmm. it was really quite a lesson about maintaining a certain authentic voice. Mm -hmm. I guess part of it is, is that your new work uh, and I know divorce is mentioned in the title, mm-hmm. you know, when I went through a divorce as a comedian, I couldn't write about it. It wasn't right. funny. You know, I mean, I tried a few things like I'd, instead of ever <laughs> yeah. using the word divorce, I would say that I was merrily downsized you know? <laughs> and and bankers would look at me like, what are you talking about? But I would always force myself to find a different way to say it yeah. um, that I thought I was a catch, but it turned out I was a catch and release you know kind of <laughs> but I didn't also didn't want to do it on stage because I have children and I didn't want to make it a forum for me 100% to, to you know it didn't want it to be unfair but it made it it made for a long dark tunnel to try to write about light funny things yeah you use a lot of humor and a lot of clever content to make your material accessible i mean that's my assessment for what Part of your catalog I was listening to is there's a very clever way of using your craft.
0: I don't think I'm overtly necessarily doing it to make it uh, accessible. I think that's a good byproduct of it, though. Just for me, like there is like part of the challenge of making stuff enjoyable for myself is trying to find the little bit of light in the darkness. And sometimes that little bit of light can only come for me, it can only come through the avenue of absurdity. If I stretch something in the darkness, if I stretch it wide enough, if I pump up the absurdity of one of the elements of it, it allows a little bit of light to shine through. And it allows me to spend more time talking about the dark stuff. If I have like this this angle into it where it's not just strictly confessional, because that type of stuff, I only like it in a small doses from other people. This project for me is the most I've ever done on on that level where it's just like me talking about myself and some of the darkness that I deal with. I'd never really have gone into that to this degree as I have on this album. But even then I didn't want it to feel completely dark because I don't feel completely dark about it. I think that part of how I feel about things is absurd. (laughs) And so I wanted to be able to paint with that color.
1: Well, I heard the legendary Iron Hood Mm -hmm. and, it's funny when I heard it first of all I didn't know its context right mm-hmm. and so I started thinking oh how much of this is really about his brother Charles like it, this was <laughs> okay. okay this was me a naive person going oh this guy had a tough tough you know situation with his brother and then I discovered that it was about <laughs> influenced by the X-Men um, yeah. characters uh, I guess, juggernaut and some other things. Uh-huh. And then it was a whole different, it was so fascinating to me that the way trying to think of some of the lyrics you talked about, uh, having some now and laters and, uh, Canadian, um, yeah, clearly Canadian. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So I love that nostalgic tone and whatever. And then I noticed that it was actually produced by they might be giants.
0: Which, well, uh, Dan Miller from they might be giants played a guitar on it. Oh, okay. They're, Production was handled by this guy named Exile.
1: I know that you're a fan of They Might Be Giants, Mm -hmm. nonetheless.
0: Yeah, for sure. And they
1: were an influence. But they are so great to me. They have, they're great musicians. Their lyrics are amazing. And there's just so much weight and whimsy that share Mm -hmm. a sidecar with each other, you know?
0: That is like, that is my address for consumption. Like, that is what I love. And so I'm always trying to seek a balance between those two things. I'm aiming to be at that intersection of my own work.
1: I love it. Are you a fan of the uh, Bare Naked Ladies at all?
0: I haven't heard a lot. And 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 that's the thing is is people do recommend them to me all the time because of my love for they might be giants, but I've never really dug into Bare Naked Ladies too much.
1: Yeah. Well, they might be giants. There's so many times I listened to Birdhouse and the
0: Salt. Uh-huh.
1: That whole flood album was extraordinary to me.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely, I might cover that album soon. <laughs> oh man, that would be insane!
1: How what a great
0: idea that is! Yeah, I like, might. I'm, I'm. I'm. It's. It's knocking around in my head right now, and and especially because it just came up in this conversation. It's like, uh huh. Yeah, I think that's a good idea.
1: <laughs> oh man, I, I sign me up. I'm going to pay cash money for that. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to ask for the industry comp as they do. <laughs> People always would say that to me about tickets to my shows, and they would be. You know, like a neighbor who's a lawyer. Can I get an industry cop? I go, what industry are we in? You, <laughs> you know, is this the HOA freebie tickets? Or what are you, what, are you t- what industry are, is this? That's hilarious. Well, you've worked with a lot of really interesting people. I came to see you uh, at South by Southwest 2019. You were at the hideout and uh, you were part of a podcast. And my, the producer of this show, Amanda Rosenberg, was on that show with you. But that's the first time... That I had discovered you. Um, oh wow! Yeah, as I live in Austin, Texas, so you were in for that. Yeah, for that I love, year. I, I love Austin,
0: and that that might have been the, the most fun I had at South by was that year.
1: Well, you it was fun. I I thought you were fascinating, and I thought you were you know a fun guy that had tons of great ideas. At that time, you had a show on called The New Negroes that was mm-hmm. playing. I don't is that uh, still playing or have any new season or
0: anything. No, uh, that got canceled, which was part of my bad year. Oh, I'm so sorry. It happens. It, it was the whole situation was kind of fraught from the beginning for a lot of different reasons. And so it actually like in the in the grand scheme of things, like if I'm to speak in any other means other than financially, it's probably a good idea <laughs> that, it, <laughs> that it ended the manner in which it ended was in the middle of a tough year for me anyway. So I took it like super personally, but uh, ultimately I think it's pretty okay.
1: Well, it was was an interesting project. You worked with some interesting people. I saw that Mm -hmm. you worked with Lizzo and I, I had just seen her interview recently with uh, David Letterman. I don't know if you've seen that.
0: I haven't seen it. I I saw that it's on a Netflix show, right? It is. And it's quite good.
1: It's quite good. It's very, it's fascinating to be in her world and also to see how not in her world he is in a way. Yeah. I mean, that's a really kind of new situation with with the way interview shows are going and mm-hmm. that it, they're unusual places for people to meet in, in the crossroads of light.
0: hundred percent. And Lizzo is a, is a particularly interesting case for me because I've known her for many years. I'm in the independent kind of underground sector of hip hop, and that's where she started. I don't think I've ever watched anybody become famous as hard and fast. Not in the overnight sensation sense because she's been working for years. I opened up on a tour for her in like 2015, I think, 2015, Mm -hmm. 2016. You know, we were playing like 350 cap rooms and she was training, you know, she was she was preparing herself for something way bigger when it happened. I just never I've never in my life seen. Seen it happen that big and that fast to where like. You know, it's funny you say that her and David Letterman are in the same world anymore or, or aren't in the same world. It's like I feel the same thing about her now. And it's it's fascinating to me because we used to be in the same world. And now circumstances are completely different.
1: Sure. She's deserving of her success.
0: It's of really, course. Yeah, she's really worked amazing. really hard. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I got to ask you about another thing. Now, again, I did a cursory searching around and I discovered that in the keeping it real thing, you were wrestling. In Kentucky, with Mick Foley was in your corner or something. Mick Foley,
0: yeah, and and Ken Anderson, yeah, man, that was that was probably the greatest, one of the greatest days of my life. So
1: that because the show was looking for that kind of thing, or you pitched this? Like, how do you get? Oh, that that thing I
0: made that. Okay, that wasn't like a network or anybody. Like I made that.
1: It blew my (laughs) mind. Like I was like, okay, so now I want to talk to you about the combination of the desire to wrestle, the theater, and the training, and you're like. Even though I know the Harlem Globetrotters are playing the same Washington Generals every game of their life, they still have to sink a basket, right? Right. In this wrestling thing, you're taking,
0: you're being body dropped and all of that. Yep. hundred percent. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. I had to perform moves. I had to receive moves. Yeah. It was the whole thing. All right. So tell
1: me about the concept and then how you brought it to life. And it was six episodes, right? Or The
0: thing actually started organically on Twitter. Maybe what what it it probably helps to understand about me is I'm a giant wrestling fan and have been my entire life. I didn't know that. Good. I used to do a wrestling podcast. I've been watching wrestling all my life. I've been reading about wrestling on the internet since I realized you could do that. So (laughs) I, I know a lot of the ins and outs of the business as much as you can know without actually being in it, of course. And so there's this guy, Shiloh Jones, who's a wrestler, who was at a wrestler out of OVW, Ohio Valley Wrestling, which is based in Louisville, Kentucky. And his gimmick was that he was a rapping wrestler. Ah. And he's a heel, so he's doing it terribly on purpose, Uh, genuinely embodying an unlikable, (laughs) try-hard rapper character. And before his matches, he comes out and does a terrible verse. And at this time, he had decided to record these terrible verses in the ring as OVW's television tapings were coming out, he would clip these and he would tag professional rappers in them to challenge them. (laughs) So I became aware of this when he actually tagged me in one of those postings.
1: Really just for you to hear it, there wasn't a challenge. He didn't incite you to fight him or anything at that moment.
0: No, uh, that thing, it was his gimmick of, I'm better than all these rappers. (laughs) I'm better than, you know, he tagged me with Cameron and Kendrick Lamar. But the thing with me is not only did I actually kind of have an idea what he was going for, I had time on my hands. (laughs) Uh, So I started going back and forth with him on Twitter. He would post these videos and and, and the one he tagged me in, I like, quote, tweeted it and told him he should stop telling all my (laughs) followers, look how terrible this guy is. Do you recall right at that moment you had told him
1: to get out of the business? And it sounds like this series of tweets back and forth was playful and almost like the way All-Star Wrestling starts with a series of baiting each other a little bit.
0: Exactly. And then Ohio Valley Wrestling is now owned and controlled by a guy named Al Snow. And Al Snow uh, was a popular WWF wrestler in the late 90s. When he saw the energy that was kind of going back and forth in these tweets, he followed me. I don't know if he could tell that I knew what was going on or not, but he got the idea first that maybe we could actually do something with this. I DM'd him and let him know I was a big fan of his and I was completely a fan of the business. You know, then we got cooking on how we could take the angle and do something with it. Yeah, so that's when the plan started to do the things we needed to do to make it make sense for us to have a wrestling
1: match. Well, it was cool. It had a, a documentary style. Yeah, man. You had a character with some makeup. Like, did you end up with a name? Did you, did you just go open Mike Eagle, or did you?
0: I just went open Mike Eagle, and and it's funny because that face paint, I <laughs> regretted it so much. Because, <laughs> like most things with this with this incident, I didn't have time to prepare. So I'm like telling the makeup guy, like, yeah, give me something that looks like Mike Tyson's right. face tattoo. And he looks like he makes it look like I got ran over with a tire in the face. It was <laughs> really bad. Yeah, it's really bad. Well, it, it was funny. I mean, it was a little
1: campy. I, I go far back yeah, in wrestling. Sure. I go all the way back to Baron Von Roschke's The Claw. Um, oh, was that AWA? Uh, or it came out of Minnesota. The, the,
0: yeah, I think that was AWA. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, I mean, we, as a kid, stomped around the living room and threw each other in the beanbag chair, you know, and then gave each other the claw on their head. hundred percent. And we knew it was fake, but you still see somebody held over their head and thrown onto the canvas. You know, you still got to take some hits there.
0: Yeah. I, I only was able to train for a day and I hurt myself training. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's
1: crazy. Well, are you a in-shape guy as it is? You work out a lot?
0: Uh, no, <laughs> I, I, at the time I was playing a lot of volleyball and that was about the extent of my exercise. I'm not terribly out of shape, but I'm certainly not in professional wrestling shape. To me, it was really fun and a little bit confusing. Is this guy kind of a wrestler on the
1: side? And he takes me back to the Andy Kaufman wrestling days. Yes. We had had uh, George Shapiro on this podcast a little bit ago. He was Andy Kaufman's manager also at the time mm-hmm. and talked about how that all came to be where he ended up on Letterman and the pile driving and the, that was beautiful wearing the neck brace for a year.
0: Yeah. And getting slapped by Jerry Lawler right. and all that was so great. That kind of stuff inspires me. I, it's just a thing that I admire the, the level of commitment of, of an Andy Kaufman and wrestling is the sort of, uh, medium in which that you can take that so far if you're willing to commit, especially back then when so many more people actually thought it was real. <laughs> Again, it
1: was on television. TV, uh, as seen on TV, is a very confusing thing for people. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, it has to be real. Or they, right. they look at them. They're doing it. You know, you don't know they're all pals and eating burgers afterwards. <laughs> right. Were you a teacher prior to doing uh, your work professionally?
0: So the last thing I taught was third and fourth grade special ed. Like I was their homeroom teacher, so I taught them math and science and every anything else that they gave me the textbook for. I'd have to teach, and that was a very dangerous situation <laughs> that I was in. To put you in charge, uh, you mean? Or well, no, the school itself. Okay. This was called a a, a non public school, which meant for this particular school, you as a student had to have gotten expelled from two other elementary schools already before you could get referred to this school. It was literally dangerous. Like I had a stabbing in class. I had a kid come one day. He had been out for a week and I got to admit, man, we were kind of happy he was gone (laughs) and he came back with a house arrest bracelet on. Oh man. In the fourth grade. That's crazy. I mean,
1: I know it's true. This, the world is, is that way. But boy, that's quite a bit to
0: deal with. It was a lot. Really, it taught me a lot about parenting because there were a lot of different situations that led these children to being who they were. Everything from like advanced fetal alcohol syndrome to just the streets themselves. Mm -hmm. But one thing that was consistent for all of these kids in this entire school, all of their parents were bad at boundaries. All of them. And it seems like like, like I came away from that experience thinking like this is the golden lesson. Not that anybody's going to be perfect at them, but it is so important to try to have them to try to institute something at home about respect and consequences. Because if you don't, you'll send these children out into the world and they will respect nothing, Mm -hmm. nothing at all.
1: As unusual as this was and as dangerous, it sounds like you may have been empathetically the very person that many of these kids probably needed to hear from, given your range intellectually and emotionally. It was probably difficult to be creative at that time. Was it at the end of a day? Was it, you know, were you still
0: writing or? I'll tell you something else I learned. I learned that although I might have a good skill set for role modeling, which is, I think, what you're getting Mm -hmm. at. I learned that I am not a good teacher and I would never be a good teacher because what the good teachers used to do, and I noticed this, they would work, you know, they'd get there at 730, they'd leave at 430 and they would go home and spend the evening prepping for the next morning. And I would never do that. Mm -hmm. I would go home and I would make music. I would go home and do anything else. Because I wasn't going to take that work home with me that the way that they were dedicated to doing that for as as much as it was valuable for me to demonstrate patience and clear communication and, you know, some measure of boundaries with these kids. The negative (laughs) about having me as a teacher is that I was going to be improvising (laughs) most (laughs) of the day when the good ones had a plan.
1: Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you your merit badge as a role model. There we go. I'll take it. And I'll give you a side, (laughs) you know, I'll give you some side applause for being an improvisational teacher.
0: Yeah, I used to teach hungover. It was terrible. But
1: but you know what? In the end, the writing, the writing you did at night led to finding your own voice. It sounds like it was sometime after that that you were were you taking the stage
0: during that time or more after that? During then, too, in terms of shows, I was in a rap group at the time. And we would take any show. We would perform anywhere. We would, and, and it's funny because I ultimately want to develop some TV around that because I think those were just fascinating times. But I was the character who I'd have to do our show in my work clothes, <laughs> so I'd have like my button up and my slacks on at the underground rap show.
1: That's a funny. That's and yet you were dressed for it from work.
0: Yeah, is that exactly. how you came up with
1: that character? Was you didn't have time to change?
0: Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent like that, that, that was my life, you know, was, was trying to find clothes that would work for both because I would never have time to change.
1: That's really funny. It's awkward to be walking out of, uh, you know, an academic setting or, or at least that place to then to be in a rap place like that. You, you have some other bridges that you are always trying to sort of be between two worlds. I know that, that Mm -hmm. the uh, song relatable, it relates to that in some ways, right? being between yeah, two worlds?
0: I think so. And, and I think it's, you know, that sounds also about like the pain of small talk of just trying to like find the most relatable things to say about myself in a moment when I don't feel that way at all. Trying to diffuse the weirdness that I feel and, and uh, make other people feel comfortable, but I'm the only, I'm the one that's uncomfortable to begin with. So it's all a big dirty loop. <laughs>
1: Well, I know it. I will say this. I don't think of you as a guy who is a small talker, number one. Um, you're a guy with big ideas and a great expression. I'm, Thank I'm you, grateful man. that you've shared your voice with me today on this. I guess I would ask if you have any uh, creative spark that you could offer, not necessarily a newcomer, but mm-hmm. anybody in a creative vein, wrestle this muse of creativity.
0: If something far away, if something, if something big or something far away feels out of my grasp, then I like to focus my creativity on whatever's right in front of me. One of my favorite songs I ever wrote is about me doing the dishes because I use that as like a starting point to kind of talk about how my mind wanders. And it just gave me this really fulfilling sense of like, oh yeah, this represents who I am as a person because it's me doing this physical act and allowing my mind to wander and I make the song feel that way. So that's like always a reminder to me of like that there is something even in the most mundane activity or idea I can think of. There's usually something in it. And, you know, not that you're necessarily going to always have a keeper when you focus your energy that way. But I always like to remind myself of that. I, I just try not to be afraid to write a stupid song. What's the name of that song so I can hear it? I thought dishes dishes. I'm just washing dishes. I got wet sleeves. Don't make dishes while I'm scrubbing. That's a pet peeve. I really, really hate that. Uh, me. I'm just washing dishes. Trying to help around the house more. I'm making income instead of outpour. Enough about my shit. Let's talk about chores. Let's talk about yours. Yeah, mom. Uh, done.
1: I think you've tapped into something that many other creative folks have said, is that sometimes they have to be busy on not on the task to, in order for their mind their subconscious to f- flow freely absolutely know? well this is great i i still have so much more to learn about you and see i'm going to deep uh dive a little deeper into your catalog you know i'm happy to meet you today i'll encourage folks to check your current album out the most recent one the animate trauma and divorce mm-hmm. and also i'm if you need a champion for the they might be Giants cover of Flood. I, I can't <laughs> wait for
0: Whistling in the Dark. Whistling so, in the Dark. I can't wait. That's actually the one that's got me most excited.
1: It's great. Thank you again for investing the time with us today.
0: Thanks for having me, man. It's, it's been a, a fantastic conversation. It's, it's great to meet and talk to you.
1: Okay. Everyone get to know Open Mike Eagle a little better. All right. Cheers. Peace. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and you will always have an invitation to join us for more creative conversations that offer a spark of inspiration. Our show is produced by Sweetwood Creative under Whiz Bang producer Amanda Rosenberg with editing by soundsmith Casey Franco. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp. Please feel free to reach out with your input or to share a review through social media on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's or visit our website at creativityandcaptivity.fun. That's right. It's dot fun because .com is not fun. Cheers. <laughs>